It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is the man himself, Mr. Odd, John Chelkowski. Hello, everybody. So, we have a very special guest, and that is Richard Pell. And uh, he's the founder of the Center for Post-Natural History, among many other things. <laughs> and uh, the reason I wanted to bring him on today uh, was... We first met, uh, I'd say, maybe two years ago now, virtually, uh, and uh, I. sometimes when you're looking at old uh, newspapers, you come across strange and unusual things, of course, and and uh, one thing I saw, I always just assumed, I know it probably wasn't a good idea to assume, but I just assumed that the Carnegie Museum was the first and only museum Pittsburgh ever had, and uh, I was wrong. In fact, there was multiple museums, uh, including... One going back to the very, very beginning, and that was the James Lambdens Museum, which was located today where PPG Ice Arena is. And uh, we kind of had a mutual connection through there. But the more I looked into what Richard does, the more I'm fascinated just in general because of just the unusual aspect and how it kind of ties both museums together and how uh, someone like Richard, can open up your own museum uh, with enough fortitude and interest and uh, really have the interest of the world because this is an international museum now. So it have the opportunities to uh, display in England and, and in many other countries and be written up in Forbes magazine and you know, the, the works. So very, very cool. But I'm going to pass the mic off over here to Richard. And uh, I want to hear a little bit about yourself first. And then we'll dive into James Lambden's museum. But what is post-natural history? <laughs> well, post-natural history, uh, first of all, is a word that I, you know, I kind of made up to, to fill a void. Uh, and that is to say that these are all organisms that have been altered by people on purpose. Um, so that's everything from the first domesticated animals, dogs, uh, through the dawn of agriculture, but then all the way up to genetically modified life forms and the uh, altered bacteria and viruses of synthetic biology. Um, that's kind of a weirdly wide open uh, you know, uh, amount of time uh, to be considering, but um, they have kind of two things in common. Uh, one is like essential to the definition of post-natural history the way I say it, which is that this stuff's been changed by people on purpose. So in that sense, it's kind of culture as much as it is nature. Right, and we'll get back to that more. Um, but the other thing is that these things almost are never in natural history museums. You know, you, you, you see the occasional, but it's the exception. Um, over at the Carnegie, they've got a, 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 a dog or two, but uh, they're a part of a display about Eskimo culture. You know, they're not about domesticated dogs. Um, so they're always kind of on the periphery. So that's kind of where the name comes from. Okay, if natural history museums kind of stop paying attention once humans get on the scene and start to modify the living world, well, okay, then we're post-natural history. And so that's where the term really comes from. What was the first inkling that you wanted to open up a place of your own? And, and what item, specifically, <laughs> drove you to this decision uh, to make this a, a passion uh, in your life? 
Well, uh, back in about like 2004, 2005, um, I got introduced to this uh, emerging practice of synthetic biology. This is like a genetic engineering, but it's actually done by engineers rather than, um, say, scientists and biologists. You got a lot of like computer scientists who sort of take a crash course in biology, and then they're doing synthetic biology. Um, and it was really provocative, um, a little problematic. It was a little scary for me, um, but I just kind of dove into it. Uh, and I was interested in the way that, you know, these are engineers, these are software people, they're talking about bacteria as though it's like a little machine, as though it's a robot, as though it's a computer, and they talk about programming them. So I was like, okay, I, I better learn as much as I possibly can about this. Um, and so I just started going to kind of conferences about that stuff. I should say that I was, I was invited into that world by a, a guy I went to high school with. Um, we ran into each other at our 10th high school reunion, and uh, in high school, we were both like pretty much the only computer hackers at our school. Uh, and so, you know, I hadn't seen him in 10 years and kind of wanted to impress him by talking to him about some robots that I had built that, um, with some other folks that write graffiti, because I thought he would think that was cool. And he said, yeah, that's cool, Rich. I program uh, robots too, except mine are alive, and I program them with DNA. And I was like, oh, man, all right. So uh, he, he kind of waved me into that world. Um, he wanted an outside perspective. Uh, so it was really within that experience that I started really paying attention to this stuff and realizing that there was kind of no place where you could just go to, to look at it, to wrap your head around it, to think about it. All, all of our institutions that we turn to to like help us understand living stuff, zoos, natural history museums, none of them were paying attention to it. So that's when this kind of rabbit hole started to open up um, and it just kept getting bigger. You know, the, the harder I looked, the more there was of this stuff that it was just kind of excluded. And the common thread gluing it all together was it's things that had been kind of changed by people. A good example would be our vegetables, really. I mean, going back far enough. And, and yeah, basically, yeah, exactly. Everything that we eat. And uh, it's definitely a, a unique um, kind of, you don't want to say underground because it's not underground. It's in the foreground. It's just that uh, many people don't know about it or or have known that these things were genetically modified and the benefits that you can get from uh, an altered genome. And uh, while controversial, so I'll just, I'll just throw it out there. What's the what's your opinion on human genetics and um, you know the the way you can alter a genome with a plant? We know that we can do it with people. What's your theory on the positives and the negatives? Oh, well, there's there's a, a long history of people trying to alter people, um, and it's uh, generally really bad. Uh, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a nasty part of our history that uh, kind of keeps coming up, and then we uh, try to erase it again. So I'm kind of re referencing here the history of uh, eugenics, particularly American eugenics, um, uh, which was a like very popular idea in America, especially uh, amongst progressives. Um, which is something that we often forget about, um, but uh, you know, it was you know seen by in, 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 in one lens as like this like hopeful way of eliminating disease, uh, and and the other lens was you know taken into this kind of extreme um, where uh, you know basic racist ideas that are you know held to this day by a lot of white folks um, were empowered with this idea that you could uh, you know alter human beings to fit that racist interpretation of the world. Um, and, you know, it's just after World War II that 
we stopped talking about that, but those ideas are still there. So I'm real skeptical about um, when people talk about improving the human race through kind of new technologies. I don't think we've really dealt with uh, kind of the unspoken racist ideas that um, underpin that stuff to begin with. Having said that, um, there are a bunch of diseases uh, that uh, are just horrible uh, that can be traced to single flaws in individual genes. Um, and the possibility that we could cure those in like a living adult person um, uh, is incredible. Um, and and that, that, th those two things need to be sort of held together at the same time. And, and that's kind of what we do here. Um, we don't give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to any of this stuff. It's, it's quite complicated and we want people to be able to like kind of sit with um, something that seems contradictory or paradoxical um, and, and you know, help us all to kind of work through that uh, because uh, no individual human being has their head wrapped around um, what all of this stuff ultimately means. You studied at Carnegie Mellon. Could you tell us what you studied and then if somebody was to come here on a Sunday, what are they, they going to see? All right. Uh, well, I, when I went to school, I, I studied art, um, and I still teach art at, at Carnegie Mellon. I came back after about a decade. Um, and one of the really interesting things about uh, uh, that program that time um, was that it really encouraged artists to kind of work way outside of kind of the, the expectations of what art is, um, and often to be making art that doesn't look like art, um, to be engaging with people. And so... Uh, everything I did uh, coming out of there was um, kind of indebted to uh, kind of engineering and society and complicating those things. So Carnegie Mellon's like very famous for its robots, right? Um, and I, uh, you know, noticed that a lot of my classmates, the kind of robots they were working on, um, were kind of DOD defense military robots. Um, and I was kind of interested, what would the opposite of that look like? Um, so... Uh, me and a, and a, and a group uh, uh, called uh, the Institute for Applied Autonomy um, started building robots that would kind of work in the opposite direction. What if we put you know, this, you know, emerging technologies in the hands of like street activists? What would that look like? And so we started making robotic graffiti writers and uh, text message systems for large protests um, that ultimately became Twitter. Um, but it, it came out of like a very uh, you know, activist-oriented kind of practice. Um, when you walk into the, the Center for Post-Natural History, you see something that looks a lot like an old natural history museum. Um, we use a lot of those uh, signifiers because it just helps people kind of understand, okay, we're looking at life. We're also going to be seeing some taxidermy. Um, and that's kind of weird. Like there's like a couple of places you see taxidermy. It's like um, hunting lodges uh, and natural history museums. And that's, that's kind of it. Maybe, maybe some weird hip restaurants. Um, but uh, so, you know, we, we operate in the guise as a, a, a kind of natural history museum. So one of the first uh, specimens you'll encounter uh, is our goat uh, named Freckles. Um, and Freckles is, a, uh, of course, a domesticated goat to begin with, right? There's a few thousand years of co-evolving with people went into uh, Freckles before the genetic engineers arrived. Um, but she also has a, a few genes that no amount of breeding could have gotten into Freckles. She has genes from an orb spider. 
the genes that the spider uses to make its webs are expressed in her mammary glands. So she's literally making spider silk in her milk. Uh, she comes from a lab in Utah where that's what they do. They're trying to make lots of spider silk. Spider silk's super strong, all kinds of reasons you'd want something that's strong and flexible. Um, and uh, spiders are antisocial, so you can't really farm them. We, ha we didn't, haven't domesticated spiders yet to the extent that we've domesticated goats. So uh, that was the out-of-the-box idea was uh, they can make a lot of goat milk uh, with spider silk in it and then uh, uh, use it to make stuff. They haven't really taken any real products to market yet. Um, and there are other companies making spider silk with other living uh, organisms, uh, silkworms, for example, or yeast, and even bacteria. Um, there are some uh, very expensive neckties that have entered the marketplace. But uh, that's, that's about where things are right now. But I suspect um, that'll change in the very near future. Like I was saying before, you're not the first museum to have your own museum, you know, first person to have your own museum. And... There was many people, including James Harris and uh, the Davis family, who were also uh, pioneers in the movie industry, the film industry, uh, with the world's first movie theater, uh, who also had a museum of his own uh, called the uh, Academy Theater, uh, which is pretty cool. I'll have to send you something that's uh, kind of uh, is real interesting. <laughs> um, specializing in oddities, people odd, you know, people oddities like world's skinniest man, uh, man with a broken neck that's still alive, and and the and the in the usual kind of like Ripley's believe it or not. Uh, but where, how back to how we got connected in the first place was this man named James Reed Lambden. And most people would know him from the fact that he was an official portrait painter for multiple presidents lived here in Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh specifically, but he had a unique thing and, and, uh, ambition other than just being an artist like yourself which is kind of like the neat, neat connection is how through art he was able to see the art and things that some people didn't see and uh, which led us to James Landham's museum, uh, which was here in Pittsburgh. And uh, what can you tell me now that you've, so after I kind of like split the spark, <laughs> right? Um, it, it, it caught on fire on you and, uh, and, and you've really delved into it as well. And uh, what can you tell me about what you've learned from James Lambden? Sure thing. Well, the, the, the thing that blew my mind about that is I, I've, I had been doing a lot of research into kind of, you know, my own ancestry uh, as, a, as a museum in America, um, you know, and uh, if you research that, it, it eventually takes all the way back to Philadelphia and, and Charles Wilson Peels, generally credited as uh, having the first uh, museum in America. And it really kind of set the mold. It was one of the first museums in the world that was really for like the, the general public, right? Um, and it included, uh, you know, taxidermy of wild animals and domesticated animals and emerging technology and all like all the new stuff, you know, just trying to share that with people. Um, and he was, you know, this is commensurate with the founding of the nation. So it's, he's, he's right there alongside the founding fathers trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and he, he had, uh, had a few sons uh, who went off and started versions of, of that museum in New York and in Baltimore. And that's kind of thought of as like the uh, the foundation of museums in America. Uh, and then, lo and behold, there's this other guy, James Lambden. Uh, and he's kind of right around the same time. We're talking 1828, 1829. Um, and I, when I looked into his story, it was fantastic. Um, so he's he's a young man uh, on his way to art school in Europe, you know, which is like there there could be nothing better than that. He's, he's, his dad's funding this. 
um, and he's, uh, he's in New York getting ready to get on the ship to go, and he visits uh, the American Museum, which I think was run by Reuben Peel. Um, and Reuben's you know, just a few years older than him, so they're kind of peers. And basically his mind is blown by this. And this is all he wants to do in his life. So he convinces his dad to like, all that money we were gonna spend on art school in Europe, can I just move to Pittsburgh and, and start a museum of my own? And, and Ruben set him up with stuff. Like he, he gave him a bunch of artifacts from the Lewis and Clark expedition and some taxidermy to get him going. Uh, and he's young, he's 21 years old. And so he, 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 he starts this project that's uh, it's also one of the, it's the, I think the first building in Pittsburgh to have gas lighting, right? So, you know, it's, yeah, in, in, yeah. a, in the evening, you can imagine uh, it's, it's this kind of jewel uh, in, this, in the middle of the city. Um, he, he didn't have all of the sort of science background that uh, the Peels had. Um, he, was, he wasn't making his own taxidermy as far as I know, uh, but he was a, a very, very competent painter. Um, and he had the fantastically naive idea that the, uh, the museum would fund his career as an artist. <laughs> um, and in reality, you know, museums are these just chronically financially failing institutions, I'm sorry to say. Uh, so he's you know, traveling all over the region doing portraits for the aristocracy in order to fund the museum, to keep it afloat. Uh, and it, it only lasts about four years before he... He, he packs it up, he tries it again in Louisville, and then he just calls it quits for good. Um, but uh, uh, he, he called it the greatest mistake of his life. Um, <laughs> we've been open for seven years now, so I feel like we've like cleared some sort of event horizon there. Um, but I just, I love his story. And, and if you dig into you know, what little history there is, the artifacts of this museum, you're really looking at ads that were in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. That's, that's basically everything we know about it. He had a couple of diaries somewhere in some archive. I've only seen secondhand references to it. Um, but within these ads, you see a museum that's kind of, again, embracing both wild and domesticated life, emerging ideas of science. He hosted uh, lectures on you know, the chemical composition of water uh, and, uh, and would uh, host huge panoramic paintings that uh, were essentially the virtual reality of the time. Uh, and as time goes on, you can sort of see the, the kinds of things that he's hosting becoming a bit more spectacular, a bit more leaning into the kind of the sideshow kind of stuff. Um, he hosted uh, an incredible uh, artist uh, named Martha Honeywell. Um, and she... Uh, is sort of famous for doing miniatures, silhouettes, and uh, very tiny writing um, uh, with uh, having no arms. Um, she had essentially uh, three toes that she worked with and would uh, primarily use her mouth uh, to do exquisite needlework, um, portraits that she would cut with scissors, like silhouettes, uh, and near microscopic writing. I, I have in my collection a... Uh, uh, version of the Lord's Prayer that she wrote within uh, a space the size of a dime. Wow. Um, and it's better penmanship than I have at any scale. Um, and then uh, one of the last exhibits uh, that he took an ad out for was, uh, was a mermaid. Um, and this is really in that kind of the first wave of kind of mermaid fever within the U.S., 
Um, it was a specimen that had been traveling around London for quite some time and finally made it here. Uh, and we don't know exactly if it's the same one uh, that would ultimately end up in P.T. Barnum's museum about 20 years later, uh, or 15 years later. Um, but uh, it was definitely kind of, of of the type. And it's kind of where you see these early museums kind of become uh, these more kind of spectacular, entertainment-oriented kind of places. Um, literally, P.T. Barnum went around and bought up uh, what remained of uh, the, the Peel Kids museums um, and uh, opened up his own American museum in New York City. So it really does kind of, it, there's kind of a switch that gets flipped halfway through the 19th century um, before uh, the Carnegies and uh, uh, all these kind of big... Uh, big-pocketed folks start to fund the uh, institutions that survive to, to this day. So the museum kind of became the sideshow for a few generations there in the middle. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about Lambden and his journey from just a gallery to a museum to sideshow, you know, towards the very end, <laughs> is an interesting evolution of early museum history, uh, just in general, let alone... The fact that it happened right here in Pittsburgh, which is makes it even cooler, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember the the list. Here's a, a tiny list of what he had. There was 200 foreign birds, 300 marine shells, 1,200 impressions of metal, 500 minerals, Indian artifacts, 100 ancient coins, and over 300 fossils. So, I mean, a wide gamut. <laughs> and uh, if I mean, it's good to know that a time travel existed. Um, we would have kindred souls uh, living in this time period in Pittsburgh, uh, which would be incredible to find and and discover and share ideas with. Because I'm sure he of all people would be thoroughly impressed with what you've done here. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I mean, um, yeah. One of the uh, really interesting things about his museum, um, the the name changed a lot. It was variously like the Pittsburgh Museum, things like that. But it's also the James Lambden's uh, Museum of Natural History and Gallery of Fine Painting. All right, so you've, it's, it's art and nature together, culture and nature together. And one of the things that happens um, over the course of the 19th century is we separate those things out. Um, we, we keep the nature on one side and the culture on the other side, uh, and there's a, a lot of debate as to exa exactly why that's happening. Um, but uh, I look at it as you know, people started to see uh, nature as this more idyllic thing. It, it exists outside of us and that people are somehow a contaminant of it, you know? Um, and that's when you end up with your art museums on one side and your natural history museums over there on the other side. And what we have here in Pittsburgh today at the Carnegie is so fascinating because it's, uh, it's, it's this rare fossil where we have both of them in the same building and there's still some kind of connective tissue between them. Um, but that, that harkens back to those earlier museums where they were one and the same. Uh, and somewhere in that separation is where what I call post-natural history becomes significant. It's, it's, it's why these domesticated animals and plants um, kind of end up in the basement because they are the contaminants of the collection, right? They're the, the things that, uh, they're, they're, they don't tell us about the habitat out there they tell us more about ourselves, and uh, that's you know that's a different uh, kind of a different frame. They're, they're kind of treated like bad data sometimes, you know. Uh, and so, in a sense, we wouldn't exist uh, had those institutions kind of remained connected. 
Interesting. I, I know. I remember at the Carnegie they used to have on display. I don't know if he's he's still there, but Count Noble. Have you heard of this? Uh, Count Noble was a domesticated dog, a uh, race dog from Swigley. Uh, it was around. Er, yeah, it was kind of like a hunting dog. Yeah, and um, it was so good apparently at what it did. That when it would enter, you know, competitions, people would just forfeit <laughs> and not even let this guy race. After he died, they stuffed him and and put him in the Carnegie Museum. And he just, with no sign, he was just sitting there next to a display, just sitting there. But he was there for eighty years or so. I don't know if he's still there today, but they did try a tiny bit, you know. Um, but yeah, they didn't. Uh, uh, it, it's interesting uh, how the evolution of the the art plus museum. Um, was separated in many other cities and were unique in Pittsburgh to where it is like that little connective tissue there that connects us all together. Uh, and it's fascinating to see how they work hand in hand and how the museum pieces themselves, including yours, I mean, are in essence art. You know, like your display of fruit flies is art. It's not just fruit flies. So, it, and uh, that is an important distinction and something that's unique to you. Uh, for sure. Um, so knowing that I'm do odd, mysterious, and fascinating histories of Pittsburgh, I, um, I, I, I've sure I found lots of strange things in the newspapers and through post-gazette archives and the works. And, and, um, I, I came across just this one single photo one time, and this was years ago now. And it was a, a photo of a man standing with a big bushy beard, big white beard, Standing downtown Pittsburgh in a more modern era, you know, the 19, I guess, late 70s, 80s, and um, standing there with this kind of, you know, placard sandwich board sign uh, says that he's not getting his mail and uh, something about mind control. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? <laughs> I need to find out more about him. And, uh, Turns out someone already did know more about him, and that was you. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't know how the, they got hand in hand connected, which is what I want to find out. How on earth did you know him and meet him? And who is he for number one? And what's your story about meeting him? And how did this relationship develop? Um, where he also, I know initially it started with mind control, of course, uh, with you being mind control, of course, as well. I'm sure all of us here in Pittsburgh. Um, but how did this come to be? And who is this man? All right. So here we're, we're talking about Robert Lansbury, Bob Lansbury, one of my favorite Pittsburghers ever. Uh, and uh, this takes us back to when I was in art school. Um, and I, I was taking a class that was uh, very much kind of indebted to public art and kind of engaging with the public. And we were sort of taking a walking tour of uh, downtown Pittsburgh that was being delivered, believe it or not, by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's full-time town crier, um, which they, they had uh, in the 90s. Um, and so she knew everybody because she, she walked the beat every day. And so she would you know, see interesting people and stop and you know, uh, introduce us. And one of those people was, was Bob. He was walking by. He had a sign on kind of blowing in the wind that said, you know, stop silent radio. Um, she said, Hey Bob, why don't you tell these kids what you're, what you do? And I, I had a tape recorder with me, so I have a recording of this and he gave us this kind of impromptu lecture on the history of radio and how in, in, you know, according to his story, um, the, the very first people to experiment with uh, radio broadcasting discovered that certain people could hear the radio inside their head. 
and that uh, that has been kept a secret uh, and has been used as a form of subliminal mind control ever since, and that he is uh, a descendant of one of those people. Because um, he, he believed this kind of ran in families. Uh, and this just blew my mind, because at the time I was kind of interested in sort of like street preachers just as like performers, mm -hmm. and like, and, and, and here's this guy, he's preaching this totally different gospel. Uh, so we, we got together and I just started interviewing him just, uh, you know, and he, once you get him wound up, he just talks and there's no, no stopping. Um, so I had hours and hours of interviews with Bob Lansbury where he's just telling the most fascinating stories. Um, and we would correspond weirdly. I have letters from Bob, you know, he would get mine, you know? Uh, and then one day I got this letter from him that said, I got the file. And he was talking about his FBI file. I was like, okay, all right, cool. And he, he went to Kinko's and he made a copy of it and he gave it to me. And it was like over 400 pages. Uh, and, you know, it starts around 1975. I, I sort of put it in chronological order just to try to make sense of it. Um, and uh, lo and behold, the very first thing in it is a letter from him to the FBI asking for the file. So uh, if you don't have one, that's a good way to start one. Um, <laughs> Um, but within it is this, it's just this kind of maze of paranoia. And I'm not just talking about Bob. This is kind of a, you know, Bob's paranoia and kind of government paranoia working hand in hand. Like each one is just super suspicious of the other. Um, he's looking for proof that they're trying to control his mind. Uh, and they see him as, you know, at various times as a threat to the vice president. They came after him when he sent, you know, Walter Mondale a weird letter. Um, spent uh, about a month in prison and has a whole, uh, the, uh, transcript of the secret service interviewing him and this very, you know, like strange conversation back and forth where they're each, each is trying to like find proof that the other one is, you know, kind of the, the aggressor. Um, so I, I, I loved Bob and I loved how like he, his demeanor was so gentle. Uh, you know, he's, he's just a, like a very grandfatherly. To, towards me, um, and and yet, yet this bizarre um, story that spans decades, uh, where he would wear his signs, trying to get the word out to the world. Um, he he believed that Carnegie there was there were sort of rogue Carnegie Mellon professors that understood how the mind control technology worked and were using him as their spokesperson. Um, so he would often like kind of stop mid sentence and go, "Okay, the professors want me to tell you about this." And uh, um, he ran for office. This is kind of one of my favorite stories of him for several years in the early 80s um, uh, for various offices, city council, all the way up to mayor. I think that was like his his major, uh, major event um, and uh, actually won Kennedy Township uh, one year um, while while he was you know, fully homeless at this point, you know, under under a bridge. Um, so just an extraordinary life. And kind of what I, what I loved about him was that his, his values were so noble. Like, you know, I mean, the man hears voices in his head, which is, you know, uh, not his fault, right? Uh, and, and what does he do in response to that? You know, he's, he's, he's trying to find a reason, you know, and he spends all his days in the library and uh, studying and then kind of morning and afternoon, he's in front of city, <laughs> city hall <laughs> protesting with his signs. Um, uh, there's something deeply American about his approach to, uh, to, to protest, uh, and his kind of concept of individual freedom 
And I really appreciated that kind of in the same way that I, I appreciate James Lambden's museum. There's something quintessentially American about these characters and kind of quintessentially Pittsburgh about both of them as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a perfect way to say it. And, uh, I would better place than Pittsburgh where radio began. Now I'm not talking about KDK. I'm talking about Reginald Vesadin in the 1890s experimenting with Allegheny Observatory and sending the first wireless communication from Allegheny Observatory to Northside, uh, or then Allegheny City, um, in an experimental way before introducing it to the public, uh, which would happen on Christmas Eve, I think 1899 or something like this. But um, wouldn't surprise me, you know, that him and uh, who was the uh, early uh, Samuel Langley, you know, were up to no good, you know. <laughs> but but um, it's 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 fascinating how you see. Someone who most people, when they pass him, would just say he's crazy. You know, look at this crazy guy, you know, on the board, you know, he's got this crazy message. You know, you want to find out why. And he wants to find out why, which is more important. And to see that someone who, you know, had some kind of thing talking to him, you know, try to get to the bottom of it and find out what really is a story. And the, the most, um, crazy part of the story really is the fact that the FBI really was keeping his mail <laughs> and the fact that they had over 400 documents on him and uh, were saving these and uh, that you've actually read them. You know, the um, it, it's, it's fascinating how these people kind of come through in the comparison of him to uh, James Lambden and how these, you know, how they're searching out this answer, which is unattainable almost. Speaking of the, uh, the, uh, the unattainable, within his FBI file, uh, you know, he, he got it through a freedom of information request, you know. And, and often when people do, there'll be like a paragraph that's blacked out and there'll be a lot of speculation as to what that paragraph contains. In Bob's case, there were four pages that were blacked out top to bottom. So your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> um, if, if you're curious about all this stuff i did put it all together into a documentary film about a 30 minute film that you can see online for free uh called don't call me crazy on the fourth of july which is something that uh lansbury once said in response to um some kind of right-wing radio personality in pittsburgh his name hansberger <laughs> yeah. I, th I think that was it um who who was uh he was talking about the 4th of July parade and, and they'll pro you know, crazy Lansbury will probably be down there. And that, that really pissed Bob off. He's a you know, veteran of the Korean War. He's saying, you know, don't call me crazy on the 4th of July. Yeah, that'll be available on the website. So if you're listening to this on uh, radio.com or iTunes or whoever you get it, uh, head over to kdkradio.com and we'll have uh, that video there. Uh, I, start, I started watching it today. It's fascinating. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I, I've watched it. I watched it last night with my wife, in fact, and like, um, just to refresh my memory, you know. And yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating documentary and a fascinating look at somebody who uh, was a unique Pittsburgh character and uh, had a message, which you helped relay, you know, and, and gave it a voice, you know, when it was, um, when, when he, you know, was struggling, you gave him uh, an outlet, which was very nice of you to do. And um, I had a similar experience when I lived in Los Angeles. I, um, in fact, I wanted to film a documentary about the homeless and wanted to ask them questions like, here's 10 questions we'll ask every single person, the same exact 10 questions, questions that you wouldn't really ask somebody who was homeless. Like, how did you become homeless? Uh, do you believe in God? You know, that you're homeless, you know? And uh, believe it or not, a majority of them were yes. 
because that's all I had left, you know. But asking these things and like the issues of what happened, you start to realize that your impression of just homeless person, you know, with a street sign changes drastically, and that there are people just like us, you know, and have a message and have a purpose and have a history and and the more you look into any of these people, um, the more fascinating they become. Each and every single one of them, really. And what I've decided uh, to do with that is kind of apply that to history uh, of the city, at least, and find random people like James Lambden or uh, just unique individuals throughout time where you can still the forgotten, you know, the ones that if it wasn't for someone like you uh, or, or, or I, you know, looking up these old stories and trying to bring them back just for 15 minutes just to give you... You know, like right now, people will probably start Googling Bob Lansbury. They're, you know, they're probably going to start reading his obituary, you know, learning about him, learning about James Land and, you know, everything that's out there. And um, if it wasn't for people like you and me and, and many others in the city of Pittsburgh sharing these kind of hidden stories, um, they'd be lost forever. And it's important what you do. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, before we go, can you tell us how to get here and when you're open? So uh, the uh, Center for Post-Natural History is open every Sunday from noon until 4, uh, and that's pretty much it. Uh, we are located in the Garfield neighborhood on Penn Ave at 4913 Penn Avenue. We end every episode with a saying. So if you'd like to do the honors. That's it, Fort Pitt.